Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. It's our custom at Harvest to mark the last Sunday of the year as we used to call it Consecration Sunday, but nobody knows what that word means anymore. So here's a simpler way of saying it. It's Recommitment Sunday. It's a Sunday where we're remembering that God paid a great price to set us apart as a people called by him, for him. And that's something we want to be mindful of. We use the last Sunday of the year to reflect on our own spiritual journey over the past year. And then to think about the year to come and recommit our hearts to Jesus Christ for the new year. This morning, I want to look at John chapter 14 and look at a passage that arguably is the most important passage in the entire Gospel of John. We'll look at John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. Here's what it says. We're going to read from the English Standard Version, the ESV. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, when we talk about something like recommitment Sunday, it matters supremely what we are recommitting ourselves to. We're not recommitting ourselves to some moral code or to some lifestyle that what we are committing ourselves to is a person. We're fond of saying that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. But think about the way that you have lived out your Christian faith in the last year. Do you think that the way you've lived it more closely resembles a religion or a relationship? Now, I hope that the answer is it's a relationship because the truth is at the heart of the Christian faith is the idea that we don't follow a certain code of ethics. We don't follow a belief system or a body of knowledge. We follow a person who he himself is the word, the truth, the way, and the life. And that is the person that I'm going to invite all of us this morning to recommit our hearts to, to the person of Jesus Christ as the central figure of the Christian faith. I want to look at these three claims of Jesus, and even though they are very related, I want to draw some distinctions between the three of them and show you exactly what it is that we are recommitting ourselves to, who we're placing our trust in. And the first claim that Jesus makes here is he says, I am the way. I am the way. You know, from time to time, I'm crazy or maybe you'll call it stupid enough to go and try to watch a blockbuster movie on its opening night. You guys ever do that or are you more of the school of thought like, forget it, I'm going to wait about a week until the crowds die down. I sometimes like the energy of going on opening night. 
But invariably, when I do this, here's what happens. I walk in 20 minutes early and the theater is already packed. And as I'm scanning the auditorium, I see what appears to be a bank of open seats, primo seats right in the middle. And I start walking excited to tell my friends, come on, I found some seats. And as I get up there, what do I see? Some dude has laid like six coats across all of those chairs. And as I'm excited to sit there, I go, oh, I'm sorry, these are taken. And I feel two things very strongly at the same time. Obviously, you know, the first feeling is I am annoyed beyond. Seriously, if your friends can't get here on time, they shouldn't have a seat. And I'm very annoyed because I want those seats. My butt should be sitting where your coat is. But the second feeling that I feel is admiration. Why admiration? Because I think it takes a great deal of loyalty to endure the scorn of dozens of strangers in order to protect a seat for a friend who could not come to the theater on time. And as I'm upset at this person, as I'm judging them in my heart, I'm also admiring them thinking, dang it, I hope my friends are that faithful. I hope that my friends would fight through the crowds to save me that seat. Because some of my friends, if I'm honest about it, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to get to the theater and they're like, dude, look around. It's so crowded. Sorry. I tried, but what are you going to do? Everyone's got friends like that. You kind of like, it's a 50-50 crapshoot whether that person's going to save you a seat or not. But we also have some friends who are extremely faithful. And you know that if you get there a little later, they're going to be there for you. They're going to have saved that seat no matter how many people looked at them with hatred in their eyes. See, we live in a world where you have to scratch and claw for everything. In sixth grade, I remember seeing a poster in our classroom, and it was a series of fish, one bigger than the next, eating each other in a, in a line. And, and the caption on the poster was, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And I asked my teacher, what does that mean? Because I was still fairly a new immigrant. Uh, what did that mean? I asked, and she said, what it means, little Han, that was my Korean name. I didn't go by Dave until much later. She said, it means that in this life, no one will give you anything without strings attached. That everything costs you something. That this is a world where if you want something, you have to give up something. You have to fight hard to get it because nobody will just lay down and give you everything. And I remember even as a new immigrant, as a young boy, being really depressed by that idea. Because until that point in my life, as a kid, I had experienced nothing but what I thought were free lunches. It was like, everything's free. My parents just magically put stuff out for me. And I remember, I feel like that's the day that began to mark the death of my innocence. I'm like, oh, this world is ugly. It stinks. There really is nothing for free. And we live in a world where if you get anything at all, you have clawed your way to get it. And as you're working and struggling and scrabbling around, there's this deep suspicion in your heart, does anyone really care about me? If I didn't work so hard to make a place for myself, would anybody else care enough about me to fight on my behalf? Even as you give up so much of yourself for the people you say you love, isn't there at times a voice niggling at the back of your heart that says, if I wasn't always there for them, would they still keep being there for me? If I stopped being useful, helpful, beneficial, would anyone in my life still stick around? 
I think one of the deepest longings in the human heart is to belong. To know that somebody has carved out place and space for me. I think one of the most comforting ideas in the human experience is to know that somebody loved me enough that before I even asked, they set apart a place at the table for me. That they went through great effort to make sure that I belonged and had a place called home. I think that's why the words of Jesus in this passage are so life-giving, so encouraging to our spirits. I love the way the New Living Translation renders verses 2 and 3. Here's how they put it there. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. Now, those are very life-giving words, but they're not cheap or easy words. We can't enjoy the prospect of that kind of relationship with God apart from him bearing an incredible cost to make that possible. See, the truth, the reality of our situation is that apart from Jesus Christ, we are hopelessly separated from God because of sin. Sin's not a popular word these days, but the truth is there is a lot of darkness in each of us. More than we really like to acknowledge, isn't there? This past week, I was more than once reminded that after 20 years serving as a pastor, a man of the cloth, I still stink as a human being. I got a lot of problems in my heart. I have learned how to look right and how to behave right. I'm grateful for Jeannie's testimony, but it's really not just her testimony. I think it's mine and I think it's all of ours. And I realize that apart from Jesus, I really, really deserve to be separate from a holy God. I don't know if you've ever been, some of you I know you have, you've been part of a relationship that died. A fractured relationship where once you loved someone so deeply, and then for whatever reason that person looked at you and burned that bridge. They shut the door in your face and said, from this point on, we are dead to each other. And in your heart, you want it back. You want to find some bridge across again. You want to reconnect. But that person has looked at you and said, it's not up to you. It takes two to tango. You want to dance, but I'm done dancing. I want nothing to do with you. Some of us have had to endure that with somebody we love very dearly. And it's one of the most painful things that you can go through in this life. is to have somebody close the door to relationship on you. And even though you desperately want back in, They say to you, it's done. There is no hope. You cannot come back to me because I don't want to come back to you. And if you've ever experienced that, it is such a deep heartache. And you realize how helpless and powerless we really are in a relationship. That when you decide to love someone, you give power over your entire being over to that person. And if they ever decide they don't want to play ball with you, They can unilaterally decide to shut it down. And no matter how much you want back in, it's not up to you. You can't control when a person loves you and does not love you. And when our sin caused us to have a fractured relationship with God, 
There was a break between us and him that we could not bridge by ourselves, no matter how desperately we wanted to be back with the Father. It wasn't up to us. No matter how badly we wanted to be reconciled, if he did not also want it, it would be simply impossible. And we would have to live with that regret and that frustration and that alienation forever, and rightfully so. So when Jesus says to us, I am the way to the Father, he's saying something profound. It's one of the most important statements that Jesus ever made. He said that there is actually a way back home. Do you realize what hope that should generate in our hearts? Because there's many a day when you know you deserve to be out of the house. And when he says there is a way and I am that way, the first thing we notice there is there's hope. That on the worst day of my life, when I should be rightfully booted out of the household of God the Father, there is a way back in. He also says something very important. He says this is the only way that no one can come to the Father except through me. I am not one of the ways. I am the only way. Here's what I believe he means by that. That there really is no way for a human being to approach God apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ that is personal. You can't come to the Father by doing every good thing you know to do. Good works don't get you to the Father. You can't come to the Father by learning all the rules of this kingdom and trying to live by them. You cannot get to the Father simply by believing the right set of ideas. What Jesus said is there is only one way a lost and separated human being can come home to the Father, and that is through a relationship with Him. There is no such thing as a Christless Christianity. Duh. You would think that would be obvious, but millions have attempted it. There are so many people sitting in churches throughout the world right now this morning who believe that they are of the people of God but cannot honestly say they have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And let's not kid ourselves. It's not like they don't know what a relationship is. Every human being has relationships. We know what it feels like to be in a relationship with someone. I actually know them. They are a person to me. I have emotions regarding them. I feel a sense of loss and of happiness related to them. I think about them on a regular basis. I reach out, I connect, I long for them. What it means to be in a relationship is that that person stops being an idea or a concept or part of the background scenery and they become a real person in my life. And there are a lot of people sitting in churches who believe the right things, who recite the right creeds, but cannot really say that they have this relationship with Jesus Christ. And I want to issue an invitation to each of you this morning. If that describes you, there's no need to get defensive. I'm not trying to accuse anybody of anything. I'm simply saying this is what I truly believe is the biblical definition of being a Christian is that I have approached the Father through a relationship with Jesus Christ, in which first I trusted Him to be righteousness for me. 
so that I'm not trying to be a good person. I admit that I am hopelessly a not good person. But Jesus Christ has stood over me and in front of me and covered me with his righteousness. And that as he initiated that relationship with me, that I continue to approach God by having a relationship with his son. You may recognize this part of the painting is a famous part of Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel mural. This part is the creation of Adam. And it's been wisely said that religion is man's attempt to reach God, while Jesus Christ is God's attempt to reach man. If you've been attempting to reach God through any other means besides a personal, life-giving relationship with Jesus, the kind of relationship that you know we rightfully call a relationship in your life, that he is someone you really know and walk with, apart from that, I want you to know that all you've got left is religion, and religion kills. Religion is the fastest way to suck the life out of the human spirit. Because it puts all the burden on us when it's impossible for us to close that gap. And so when Jesus says he is the way to God, he's saying something very important for us to understand. That there is no way to pursue God apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. He makes a second claim. And that is that he is the truth. A number of celebrities have tried to lay claim to that title, the truth. But Jesus Christ ultimately says, I am the truth. You know, maybe we would laugh at the ancients who, when there was a drought or a famine or pestilence, they would take a beautiful virgin, march her up to the lip of a volcano and throw her in. Now, I I think people really did that stuff in the ancient days. They would find a virgin, and I don't know why it was always a female virgin. I don't know why a guy virgin couldn't do it. It was just sexist back then. There's always a young girl. They would throw her to a fiery death, and they will look at the heavens and go, is that enough? And if the famine persisted, if the drought continued, they find another helpless young girl and throw her in. And why were they doing this? We laugh at their ignorance, but that's because they had no idea what their God was like. They could not figure out what he wanted. And so they projected onto their deities pretty much their own personality. They said, well, I know that I really appreciate a sacrificial, costly gift. And if my wife, if I was angry at her and then she cooked me my favorite meal, I would be less angry at her. And so maybe this will please our God. The truth was they were just guessing and some girl had to give up her life for this guess, this shot in the dark. But the truth is, it's very difficult, isn't it? To live under the, the power and authority and control of an almighty God who you don't know or understand. And if I could be honest, some of us, that's exactly how we experience life all the time. Have you ever said to God, why are you doing this to me? And it was a rhetorical question. You don't actually want to hear the answer. You're just going, why the heck is this happening to me? God, why would you do this to me? Or have you ever said to God, what do you want from me exactly? And the reason you're saying it is because you've given up any hope of understanding this God. You're perplexed. You're frustrated. You cannot figure out why he singles you out for this kind of punishment. And in despair, you say, I just don't get you, God. You're unknowable. I can't even begin to understand what it is you want from us 
scrawny human beings. I think it's a very common experience to live under the, the authority of a God who is all-powerful, but who we cannot always understand. And so when Jesus makes this claim, I am the truth, he is also saying something very life-giving to us. Notice he didn't say, I know the truth. I can tell you the truth. What he said is, I myself, as a person, as a human being, I actually am the truth about God. When you ask those questions in the dark of the night, why are you doing this to me? What do you want from me? I think Jesus, in that simple claim, is asking, do you really want to know the answer? Are you just complaining, or do you really want to hear the answer God has for you? Because God is not so unknowable. You can actually understand and know a great deal about the motives, the personality, the character of this God who has so much power over our lives. There's a worldview known as deism. Are you familiar with it? Deism, D-E-I-S-M. It's a worldview that says that human reason and observation alone is enough, it's sufficient to come up with the idea that there must be a supreme being. In other words, you don't need religion to tell you that. Just look around and use your brain and you'll realize none of this could have happened by accident. There is a supreme being. There is a creator. We just can't say all that much about him or her or it. What deism says is there is a God, but it rejects all the other key pillars of organized religion. Now, that's an oversimplification, but I think it does the job. It really rose to prominence between maybe the mid-1600s to the mid-1700s during what we call the Age of Enlightenment, where mankind was falling in love with his own brain. Where we're like, dang, we're not as dumb as we thought. We can figure stuff out. We can look at the night sky and go, I can see something there. And so mankind was intoxicated by his own intelligence, by his own ability to piece things together, so much so that it became a religion unto itself. And what deism says is, yes, there is a God, but don't purport to know everything about him. There are some things you can know, but let's leave it at that. I think that a lot of people who would identify themselves as Christians are functionally more like deists. They believe in a God, and we talk about him and interact with him in that way. We say things like, well, he's a man upstairs, or we say, well, what do you want? The big guy has decided it, he's decreed it. What do you want? It is what it is. My favorite expression, right? It is what it is. Deism says there is a God, he's messing around with us, but you can't really act like you know the guy on a personal level. That's not even meaningful. And I believe that a Christless Christianity is in fact nothing better than deism. It's a way of saying, I'm clearly not God, but who knows what this God is really like. We interact in, in deism with God as though he is not really a person, but more like a cosmic force, a landlord or superintendent overseeing the universe. Jesus, when he says, I am the truth, is saying God is not so distant as you think. He's not so unknowable as you think. Not only did he give you an entire user's manual, a book that spelled out what he's like, 
He gave you a person who lived it out flesh and blood so that in a way we could deeply identify with, you can understand what God is like and how he feels by looking at this person who was God on the earth. Jesus said very boldly, whoever has seen me has seen God the Father. In other words, if you really have asked in the night, what do you want from me? Why are you doing this to me? Who are you? What are you like? Those are not rhetorical questions. At least they don't need to be. There's an answer. If you want to know the truth about God, look at his son. Jesus said in the opening of this passage in verse 1, believe in God, but also believe in me. He's saying deism is not enough. You can't just believe in the big guy in the sky sitting on a throne. If you really want to know the truth about God, I'm standing right here. Get to know me. I think deism is actually rude. When God stands before you and says, I'd like to get to know you, here I am, and you say, that's okay, I'll pass. I'd rather figure you out on my own from a distance. If anyone did that to me, I would consider that rude. Excuse me, I'd like a chance to introduce myself to you. I would like to represent who I really am straight from my own mouth. I don't want you to guess at what I'm like from your own corner. Here I am in flesh and blood. You can know me. Don't just go to your corner and try to guess about what I'm like. I want to ask you, does that describe the way you generally think about and interact with God? Again, I'm not making accusations at anybody. I don't want you to be defensive about this, but I'm asking you an honest question. When you think about God, how do you think of him? How do you relate to him? How do you interact with him? Is he just the big guy upstairs? Mysterious, unknowable, random. Or do you really know him? And the only way to really know him is to relate to his son, Jesus Christ. That is the best way to clear away the fog about God and get down to exactly what he's like and what he wants for us and from us. In 2015, as we recommit our hearts to Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to really think again about the way you conceive of God. And to acknowledge whether or not your version of Christianity is built around Jesus Christ or not. I want to look at the last claim that Jesus made. And, you know, uh, I I remember several um, guest speakers at our church of the non-Asian persuasion who commented afterwards, Hey, Dave, was your congregation mad at me? I'm like, why do you ask? Because they just sit there like this the whole sermon. <laughs> and I'm like, oh no, that's the way they look when they're getting convicted and blessed. Um, when they're really getting smitten by the Spirit, they start writing stuff down. <laughs> you guys don't offer a lot of visual feedback. Let me just say that. So I don't know if you're just upset about what you're hearing or if you agree with it, but every once in a while, would one of you just randomly go, hey man, you know that's right, just something. Just let me know I'm not talking to myself. All right? Here's the last claim in this passage from Jesus. He says, I am 
the life. Many of you might remember the case of Terry Shavo. She was in a persistent vegetative state, and her state lasted from 1990 to 2005. For 15 years, a debate raged as to whether or not she was truly alive or not, whether they should pull the plug on her feeding tube or not. And it raised a lot of really important questions about what life really is because the the things that were keeping her physiological functions going were all machines. If you pull the plug on those machines, she would cease to continue living. And so the question was, if the machines are propping up her heartbeat, her metabolism, and all of that, is she in fact still in there? Is she truly alive? Well, I think I have no answer to that question conclusively, but that situation reminds me of what I believe the Bible says about those who are far from God, separated and not in a relationship with God. He says they look to be alive at one level, but they are in fact dead in another profound level. That while they appear to have signs of life, in some very important ways, people far from God, separated from God, are also dead spiritually. There is an English um, evangelist and scholar who named Arthur Pink. Just love that last name. I'd love to introduce myself to people. I'm Mr. Pink, or I'm Pastor Pink. Um, Arthur Pink wrote some very, very powerful things about the Christian faith. And here's the way that he describes those who don't have a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. He says, the whole Bible bears solemn witness to the fact that the natural man, that is the man without Christ, is spiritually lifeless. He walks according to the course of this world. He has no love for the things of God. The fear of God is not upon him, nor has he any concern for his glory. Instead, self is the center and circumference of his existence. He is alive to the things of the world, but is dead to heavenly things. The one who is out of Christ exists, but he has no spiritual life. When the prodigal son returned from the far country, the father said, This, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I'm going to ask you for the third time. Does that ring a bell with you? Does it strike a chord? Is there something familiar about that description? And once again, I'm asking you not to be defensive because nobody is accusing you of anything. Hasn't there ever been a time when you're watching one of those infomercials late night? Uh, do you have shortness of breath? Do you have? And you're like, uh-huh, yes. Oh my gosh, yes. I think I have that disease. And if you're a hypochondriac like me, I think I've got every disease. As I listen to all the symptoms, I start to think, I can identify with that. I have that. I yes this. And nobody's accusing you. They're just describing if you have this condition, you will experience these things. And so Arthur Pink very helpfully says, if you don't have an actual saving relationship with Jesus Christ, if your body is in the church pew, but your spirit is somewhere far, far away, this is what will describe you as a person. 
that you are inside spiritually lifeless. You walk according to the course of this world, meaning the things that drive you and motivate you are what drive and motivate every other man, woman, child, and animal on the planet. Time to eat. Time to sleep. Time to pee. Time to whatever. You just go along with the course of this world. There is nothing extraordinary about what drives your life. There is no greater purpose other than being alive. There is no love for the things of God. Maybe some appreciation, maybe some respect, but no love for the things of God. That you cannot rightly say there was ever a time when you read the Bible and felt the embrace of God around your heart. When you felt giddy, excited, grateful, almost to the point of tears over the words God was speaking to you. That even when you are really living far from God, there is no fear, no real respect for him. You look at God and say, whatever. I mean, life is life such as it is. I have every good reason to live as I do. I don't owe an explanation or a defense to anyone. This is just who I am and how I'm going to live. He also says that the person who is not in Christ has built everything around themselves. They are alive to the things of this world, meaning if they have 50-yard seats at the Bears game, they are giddy. If they're in the front row of the One Direction concert, you've got to have a paramedic on standby. They might just blow a gasket. But at church, they are constantly fighting to stay awake. Oh, God, please tell a joke or I'm going to lose it, dude. Do something. Have your fly open. Anything. Just wake me up. And so there is this aliveness to everything else. But to the things of God, there's just meh. It's like leftover food. Does that describe the way you feel? Has your physical body been in this building week after week, but your spirit feels lifeless? When Jesus says, I am the life, do you know what he's saying? He's saying that you cannot manufacture spiritual aliveness. When you recognize that that description Arthur Pink gave is exactly you, you can't just do something about it. You can't say, come on, self. Love the things of God. Care about his glory. Stop being self-centered. You can't do that. It's not something you have the power to do any more than Terry Shavell's husband could be like, Terry, come on, stop it, cut it out. Come out of that persistent vegetative state already. Don't you miss me, honey? Deadness cannot be remedied by the dead person. It is not in our scope of power. When you feel lifeless in your spirit, it is not something you can do anything about. When Jesus said, do you feel that way inside? I am the only solution to that problem. He didn't say, I am the lifestyle. He said, I am the life. That spark you're missing, the capacity to care about the things of God, you can't put that in yourself. The only way to come alive spiritually is for Jesus Christ to be the life for you. And you cannot get that by messing with your attitude, changing your point of view. The only way to get it, the same way Jeannie testified, is you sit before Jesus and confess you're powerless to battle this inside of you. Ask him for life because you hate the deadness inside of you. The only way to come alive spiritually 
is to come to Jesus and ask him to make you come alive. And if you're a Christian, but you feel a dryness or a numbness settling over your spirit, it's tempting to try to feel alive by amping up the adrenaline, by changing your hairdo or buying a new wardrobe or saving up and splurging on a Tesla. Going to somewhere warm during the winter and just chilling with a Mai Tai on the side of an infinity pool. Doesn't that sound really good? And when you're feeling numb and dead in your spirit, it is so tempting to believe that the way out is to feel alive the way the world does. But the best the world has to offer is adrenaline. Sensation, pleasure, but it cannot bring the dead to life. It can pump blood through your veins It can pump nutrients through your GI tract. But it cannot give you that spark, which we would rightfully call life. The only real life that we can find in this universe is found through the person of Jesus Christ. That is the only life that is truly life. Almost on a weekly basis, because of the nature of my professional work, I'm reminded at how impossible it is to do what I do if there isn't something real going on in here. This would be the most horrific job if I were faking it. Oh my gosh, I'd kill myself, seriously. I couldn't do it. I could not stand here week after week pretending. It would be the worst possible kind of hell on earth. Pay is okay, the job satisfaction will be in the basement. The only real life, and I really mean it, real life, the thing that makes you feel like you're not just here physically, but you're experiencing something. That only comes from Jesus Christ. And you can't fake it. You can't manufacture it. It's a gift. And you can only get it by asking him to give it to you. And if you've been enduring a Christless Christianity, can I just beg you to stop it and let you know that you're smelling the package where there's something good to eat inside. Stop walking past the restaurants and smelling the air. Go inside and eat something. You don't have to settle for that. You can actually be alive in your spirit. And doesn't that sound better? than pretending something else. When I say let's recommit ourselves to something, I am not speaking of a picking ourselves up by the bootstraps and sucking it up and doing better. I'm saying this. Let's remember that there is a truth about us and that Jesus Christ is the remedy for our situation. I am not asking us to produce anything but simply to go to the source of everything. That's our commitment in 2015. Though Jesus makes three claims, he's really only making one claim here. He's saying that there's something true of your human condition apart from me, and at every point of that condition, I am the only fix for you. He says that we are lost, but he is the way back to the Father. 
He says that we were deceived and blind. We were ignorant and in the dark. But He is the truth. He will tell you the truth about God and He will tell you the truth about yourself. He says we were dead, lifeless, cold and numb in our inner being. We knew so much, but we lived so little. And he says, I am the life. You don't have to settle for a religion that is dead and lifeless. You can actually be alive. You can actually smile and mean it. You don't have to pretend. Wouldn't you like that? Doesn't that sound so much better than what passes for Christianity in so many places? The key to all of this is not to get defensive, but to be honest and humble and say, does any of that still describe the way I feel? Because if it does, then my number one priority in 2015 will be this. I will pursue hard after Jesus Christ. I will present myself to him regularly and simply say, you have everything I need. Please give it to me. You have everything I need. Please give it to me. I can't find it in a husband or a wife. I can't find it in my children. I can't find it in a career. Everything I need to feel alive is in you. Please give it to me. I'm ready. That's our commitment in 2015. And I want to invite you from the bottom of my heart to accept that invitation. Make next year, 2015, the year of Jesus in your life. Amen. Let's bow together in prayer. You know, Christianity without Christ is meaningless. There's nothing going for it. It's not a particularly attractive lifestyle. It's not the greatest religion. There are easier, more carefree religious systems in this world than Christianity. Let me guarantee you that. There are certainly less expensive religions. The biggest selling point of Christianity is the person of Jesus Christ. And without him... Everything we do here is meaningless. It's empty. It's dead. So for those in our midst this morning who feel like that's exactly what it feels like to be me. I'm physically here, but I'm not spiritually here. I'm going to pray for you right now if that describes you. Lord Jesus, we believe that you are the way to the Father for those who are far from him and separated. We believe that for those who feel like you're frustratingly unknowable, mysterious, random, that you are the truth about God and you are the truth about us. That to know God, we have only to look at you. 
We pray for those who are physically here and have a beating heart, but in their spirit, they feel dead, numb, lifeless. That you would give them what they cannot give themselves. And that you would give all who are lifeless the spark of the life of God which you so freely offer. May the dead come to life in this church as they come to you and ask for what they cannot buy. God, we also pray for those who while they are saved have wandered from you who are in a far country and feeling very much like their hearts are growing cold and they miss, they long for the days when they felt so close to you. We cannot do anything about the way we feel. But teach us to do something about where we sit, where we go, what we look at, who we hear. We want to approach you, Lord Jesus. For we believe that everything we long for cannot really be found out there in the world. But it is really found in you. You are the way and the truth and the life. And we now come to you asking you for what we most need. Be gracious to us, Lord. Do something amazing in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.